Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. It's so good to see you. Um, I've missed you. Uh, you know, this only talking to you like once a week now is uh, I have to get used to it. Yeah, it's an adjustment. It is. So I'm yeah. finally, again, we have these delays, but I'm finally starting to unwind from vacation. Um, for vacation? Yeah, for vac- <laughs> what did I say, from vacation? Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, man. I slept, uh, I slept point, in- point taken, you need a vacation. I yes, do need a yes, vacation. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. And the problem is I have no place to go. I put an offer in another house in San Diego and I didn't get that one either. So now I've got several weeks where I really have nothing uh, planned and nothing to do. So I'm going to start to make some plans. I'm looking at maybe going out of the country, but again, things are so up in the air. I can't always tell that that's going to happen or not. And then I'm going to get in my car and do some road trips. Um, I want to get back in shape. I want to get back out hiking. I got to watch. I got to look where the temperatures are. Things are hot. So we'll see. I always seem to be traveling in August. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I will head north this time. Maybe instead of heading to the desert, I'll head north. Um, and then are we still planning to meet up at the end of the month? Yeah. I and mean, we don't really have dates, but that's good for both of us. So we really, I really don't want to have like, deadline dates that sort of thing so i yeah i don't have any so. we'll see. i just want you to i want you to just as a joke i want you to know that i got my medicare handbook here today <laughs> and, and you know what it's like it, it is it is so unbelievable that they send this out right it's about 130 pages long of all kinds of stuff and that really I wonder if they actually have anybody who ever reads it. I mean, yeah, that's such I mean, a waste of paper. And I think old people have the, have free time to just sit in their rocking chair with their little uh, comforter on their legs and reading their Medicare handbook. People uh, older than you probably do. Well, hundred, but they send it to sixty-five year olds, so it, it's all a hundred and thirty. It's you know, one hundred and thirty-five, one hundred and thirty plus pages of of stuff. And I, I think obviously maybe it's a reference guide, but it is sort of a waste of trees. And mm-hmm. they could do this online now if they wanted to, and they certainly could simplify it. I bet I could go through that book, although I will never do it because <laughs> I'd have to be insane and probably limit, take the information in there and put the relevant information into five or six pages. But that's not what governments do. They they make things long and hard to read. And like signing documents on um, on DocuSign for making an offer on a home or something like that, you're initialing and 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 initialing. And initialing. <laughs> Does anyone ever read the stuff? I'm sure that there's some of our listeners would say, of course we do. You have to do that. But they're probably all lawyers or real estate agents. The average person is not going to know how to read it. And then they speak a language that you generally can't understand anyway. So you just sign it and then you assume that if something went wrong, that you'll have to go after them afterwards. 
or that you the, trust the person. The, you hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a sort of a crazy, crazy world. I want to preview for our listeners today. We're going to talk a little bit about group B strep. Um, also liked, known as GBS. GBS, because Bliss liked that topic. Bliss picked the topic for today. And then she told me I had to do every, all the work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. I wonder what our podcast will be like next week when both of us are on vacation. We'll talk about what? Silence. Um, yeah. We'll talk about, <laughs> we always have stuff to talk about. I know. I know. That's Plus, I'm not really on vacation. No, you're away from, you're on vacation from work, sort of. I'm, I'm on the walkabout. I'm doing, I'm doing deep spiritual work. Not at the moment. I'm still in Sacramento dealing with uh, rentals and, oh, um, this was a fun thing. I, uh, Grant is going to be doing Instacart. So yesterday oh, I yeah. went with him. Yeah. I went with him and did all uh, his Instacarts with him. So I learned a lot about how to do Instacart yesterday. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not really deep in the in the walkabout yet, obviously, because I'm, I'm here in civilization doing normal things. Yeah, but you're, you're not taking phone calls from people wondering about this discharge or this, this rash or this something like that, right? No, but I have been, I was going to do a little follow-up on, um, I have been doing this kind of uh, consultation with that woman from Michigan who had the testing about the Downs 50% chance of get having a baby that had Down syndrome. And, um, and her original question to me was about GBS. So I thought that that's kind of why I thought maybe this would be a good topic because we, with the new branding of uh, the podcast, we decided to focus on topics. Yeah. So, yeah, we got, so that we got, we got off, we got off course. Pretty that was you. Um, so if people wanted to search for a specific topic and hear what we have to say about that specific topic, then they would be able to do that. So um, but they had their baby and, um, she said that the hospital delivery was actually great. She was pleasantly surprised. They had a wonderful experience. Um, however, their baby did end up indeed having downs and, um, was taken to the NICU. I'm not totally clear if it was an overreaction yet, just because, or if the baby was actually having issues, we, we've been trying to coordinate a time to actually sit down and have another long chat. Um, but we've been texting back and forth and um, she had a lot of frustration with um, the protocols and her experience in the NICU, which you and I have discussed many times on the podcast. And um, we uh, refer to it as baby jail um, because it's very difficult to get these babies out of NICU, even when they're not actually um, having any challenges. And so um, she was feeling really frustrated about the strict schedule of having the baby, um, having to have a certain amount of um, milliliters of her breast milk that was being pumped. Um, and yeah, so she asked me, um, you know, how she could advocate. And I said, you know, it was really, it's really difficult to do. Um, she asked them if she signed out, what would happen? And they said that they would call CPS. So, um, she advocated for herself, for the baby to be in her room for another 24 hours to see how the baby did. Um, 
And she sent me a beautiful picture and she said, just two hours after him being out of NICU, I can already see that he's thriving and he was laying on her chest and doing really well. So, um, so even though I'm not necessarily like having a full-time gig right now, um, I've been enjoying supporting this family and we're going to talk later today once they're home about, uh, best ways to, um, move forward. And I advocated for her to be able to, you know, she said, can you be the person that talks to the hospital? And I said, look, I'd be happy to talk to the hospital, but you really need to have a local provider who can put their eyes on the baby, weigh the baby. Um, this is a really great thing to develop a relationship with your pediatrician, um, and have a lactation consultant that's local, um, that can be on your team and advocate for you. And this is another one of those times that, you know, I think people really wish that we had resources in other areas that we could refer them to. Um, but I do think this is another example of us being able to, um, help support people having confidence in advocating for themselves. And I just kept telling her the more informed you are, the more you communicate with them about what your plan is, and they can tell that you're not just someone who's being irresponsible, but you're actually someone who's really informed and educated, who's advocating for themselves and for their babies, um, things will, you know, they respond better to that, so. Well, I can't speak to this specific case, obviously, because I don't know any details either. I can say some things as I'm biting my lip while you're talking, and one is, the parents not knowing why the baby's in the NICU? Okay. Oh, the baby, they did. They said that there was a, the baby was having an issue with suck, swallow coordination. But I just haven't been able to really like, you know, that's very generalized. So I didn't, I needed to kind of get right, deeper but I'm into saying it. Yeah. That the, if the baby, well, I'm not sure why that requires NICU intervention. If the baby's sitting on her chest for two hours, thriving. Yeah then clearly the baby doesn't need to be in the NICU yeah. for observation. The parents can observe the baby. The nurses could observe the baby. The, the visiting home nurse could observe the baby. If the baby, generally with Down syndrome, the thing you worry about is some, uh, some congenital heart defect that causes the baby to have um, poor O2 saturation and possibly require supplemental oxygen or something like that for a short period of time. But if the baby is having trouble sucking and swallowing, does the baby have an IV? Does the baby have an NG tube? Is it, is, or is the baby just sitting there in the NICU away from the mother, which can regulate so many of those things just by being skin to skin? Right. And then maybe there are answers to this, but usually in the narrative, you'll hear <laughs> something about the answers. And I just don't sense that the NICU team really even sometimes has answers. To these sorts of questions of why they be in the NICU. Well, baby has Down syndrome. Okay. So the baby's not swallowing well. Well, okay. Is the baby aspirating? Is the baby turning purple? Is the baby having that? And what are you doing in the NICU that we wouldn't be doing someplace else? These yeah. are the questions that if as parents you could ask, you're gonna get a you're probably gonna get an algorithmic answer um, saying, well, this is how we do things here and this is what we do, and blah, blah, blah. Because one of my favorite quotes is the long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And clearly, with what's going on in medicine in the country right now, which has been going on in our profession for a really long time, you and I have been fully aware of it, but we've been gaslighted a lot about the importance of doing certain things 
when clearly these things are not as important as the people saying them want you to think they are. Um, and I won't go any further than that. I'm going to try to do a whole podcast today without going off into that black hole of doctor dogma, dumb doctor dogma. But um, anyway, then when I listen to your story, so it, it, it's going to turn out to be fine. Obviously, this baby doesn't have some of the severe things that can go along with Down syndrome. Correct. And so we'll, the baby will probably thrive. Yeah. Interestingly enough, none of the other markers, you know, they declined in amniocentesis, but none of the other markers from any of the tests right. showed up. So that is interesting. Right. So the baby didn't have a congenital heart defect. It didn't have an echogenic focus. It didn't have a choroid plexus cyst. It didn't have pilo, uh, pyelectasis. It didn't have echogenic bowel. These are some of the soft markers that you might see on an ultrasound. Um, or even the nuchal fold measuring. Oh, the nuchal fold measuring. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, because that mm -hmm. stuff, really, I was thinking of the 20 week stuff. You're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there are very varying degrees of Downs and they're high functioning. Yeah. I, I like to tell the story of the uh, old coach of the LA Kings, Daryl Sutter, uh, when the Kings w went through their two Stanley Cup runs. Daryl Sutter's uh, son, Chris, has Down syndrome. He was the lead uh, cheerleader during the dance cam every time they had dance cam and mm -hmm. was in the locker room and he was um, uh, like the, the, you know, the, I wouldn't call him the mascot because that sounds like a, like a, you know, sort of an animal or, or a pet or something. He wasn't, but he was like the team's favorite and he was, you know, high functioning and he did things on the, you know, with the team and on the ice and was perfectly functioning and always, you know, always happy, always a happy guy. It was just very classic for Downs babies. We all need someone who's always happy in our lives yeah. to remind us to be happy. Um, you had mentioned the cl a client that we had taken care of a few years back. I'm not going to mention any names um, who uh, we supported uh, in knowing she knew ahead of time that she had a baby that had Down syndrome and had chosen to deliver at home. Um, she just had a second home birth um, in another state. And um, she and I were communicating because I had made a placenta salve for her, um, which is, you know, basically a topical ointment that you use from some of the placenta that she said was absolutely incredible for her kids um, eczema. And so she wanted to do that again. And so I kind of walked her through the process. I said, you can totally do this yourself. And so I walked her through the process. And I asked her about her home birth and um, she said, well, let's just say I was missing my team and that uh, there was a lot more fear from this team than she had had before. And I asked her if she would be willing to come on and talk about her experience on the podcast. And um, she's considering it. She said she was going to uh, wait until her care was absolutely complete. Um, and then she would think about it. But um, it might be interesting to hear about, you know, we talk a lot about the difference between uh, midwifery care and traditional obstetrical or hospital care, but it would be interesting to see in different providers amongst uh, midwifery how that can vary as well. Yeah, as a, as a physician who sort of supports all the midwives in Southern California, <clears throat> and actually other parts of the country as well, I... Um, can tell you that there's there is a, certainly a difference yeah. in, in you know and it's a personal thing some people are 
more confident. Some people are more nervous and why people are more confident or nervous. Um, there are so it's multifactorial. There's so many reasons. So some people could be, you know, bad experiences. Some people just their upbringing, um, you know, uh, it, so it's just a lot of, uh, variables. So I think that it would be a great topic. We did mention that birth recently on another podcast. We talked about how she was born the baby was born at home. And then we had been already coordinating with the pediatric cardiologist at UCLA. Um, that should the baby not oxygenate well, that we would then transfer the baby, which we did. And the baby went to the hospital and they had like 20 people waiting there for the team waiting for the baby. And the baby was observed for 24 hours and then sent home. Uh, and that was it. They didn't do anything. But that was a good plan. We had a good plan. Oh, we had a good plan. And then we had yeah. uh, my friend, Dr. Bradley was on the team. Uh, she was the MFM. And uh, I wish I could remember the cardiologist's name because he was a great guy. But it was, we, we really had, we really put together a good team for that. And you can do that sort of thing. And I do that sort of thing, you know, with other things that are considered to be high risk or risky by my uh, obstetrical brethren, like, you know, uh, insulin requiring diabetic, who's really stable. And, and today with the, with the monitors that they have implanted in their bodies, you, you don't have to be doing finger sticks all the time. You can get instant reading on their blood sugars and you know what's happening with them. And if everything else is stable, why do they have to deliver at the hospital? And people will say, well, because the baby might be hypoglycemic. Well, if the mother's sugars in labor are really running well, like 90 to 110, um, the likelihood the baby's gonna be hypoglycemic is small. And also because we're prepared for that, because we do have frozen um, donor milk in the freezer um, that we're ready to use should we need it. So. All the reasons that the hospital gives for these people, people that have to give birth in the hospital, you know, that's a little bit of uh, like closed-minded thinking, don't you think? Yeah, it's just going by what they know, the protocols. And I do think a, um, a future podcast on the topic of um, diabetes would be great. Stay tuned. Yeah. That's well, coming up. Yeah. We, we should touch on all the topics that have ever been forbidden for home birthing and go yeah. through, and go through we them. We have a list. Well, we still have a list. I have, I have yeah. a list. We all, but speaking of lists, we also have, if we have time today, we'll get to some of the remainder of those listener questions that we got on Instagram that we went through about five or six podcasts ago and, and left that behind because we you know, when we only meet once a week, you and I could, you know, theoretically, if we were had nothing to do but read Medicare pamphlets, um, we could probably do a uh, podcast much more commonly than once a week. But that's that's what we do. And so that's what we're going to keep doing for now. Um, okay. Would you like to hear would you like to hear a, a, a Instagram message that I got from a from a listener? Yeah, we could do that. I mean, yes. Yeah. And then I want to discuss a breach birth that I had yesterday. Oh, you do that first. Oh, I want to wow. hear about births. Okay. I want to hear right. about births. Yeah, births. Well, births. I, was, I was supposed to, you know, I, I was supposed to finish with the twin delivery, which we discussed in the last podcast, was my last one. Mm -hmm. But Beth had another client who was breached, and I told him I was going on vacation in August, but I said if I'm still around, I'd be happy to go. So fortunately, on August, let's see, was it first or second? I think it was August. Second, no, it was August 1st, I think she broke her bag of waters. And she had a history of putzing around with her first baby and putzing, 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 and then going like a bat out of hell and delivering like within an hour once her labor got going. So she started having some contractions about four in the morning the next morning. So this would be August 2nd. 
And so we all went over to her house and it was a big team it was Beth and her team and me. And we all ended up, you know, checking in and sleeping on the couch or the floor until about six, six, still about seven o'clock. And then we decided nothing was happening. And so we were all going to leave and we all went and had a nice breakfast over at Brent's deli, which was great. And I had fried matzah, which I hadn't had in forever with maple syrup for those people who want to know what fried matzah is. It's like scrambled eggs and matzah. Uh, and it was delicious. Anyway, then I had a really busy day and a good day. And then that evening, things started to pick up again for her. And she, now she's been ruptured like 30 hours or something. And she, things are picking up for her. So we all go back over to her house. And we're there and we're there and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And finally, it's about one in the morning, I believe, or so. And nothing is really happening. And she's been making like grunting and pushing sounds. So Beth finally checks her. And she's five centimeters and minus three. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. So we have a conversation and we talk downstairs and we say, what about uh, calling our, our, our good pal and new friend of the podcast, uh, Barry Brock, and see if what's what's cooking over there and see if maybe we can get him. So I text Barry at one in the morning, very sheepishly and apologetically. And, uh, and as always, I immediately hear back from him. And one word out of his mouth, of course, it, well, First, he says, yes, he'd be happy to take her. And I told the story and he said, just send her to Cedars and we'll we'll um, we'll, we'll take it from there. And he said, yeah, we'll send the information over. One of us will come with her, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we go and present that to the mom and the mom says one word. Sure. No. Oh, <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. He needs an epidural. Sure. OK, mm -hmm. well, it's great. So we start to clean up a little bit. We start to. I, the, the midwives are all downstairs wiping down all their, their gear and getting it put away. And, and the mother is getting slowly get dressed. The husband's getting the stuff ready to get in the car. And um, she goes into the bathroom and she's sitting on the toilet. And all of a sudden from, you know, down the, down the hallway, I hear this <clears throat> sound. Okay. So, you know, I said, do you, are you feeling anything different? Is anything changing? She says, no, no. And I said, do you still want to go? She says, yeah, I still want to go. So I said, okay, great. So they get everybody ready to go. And I get in my car and I'm heading home because the, the, we have such a big team. There's nothing for me to do. I get about eight minutes from their house and I get a call from one of the midwives saying, Stu, come back. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, wow, things turned around. Now, turned out she pushed for over an hour as a multip. Um, and that wasn't a remarkable thing. She ended up delivering on the birth stool, which I'm not a big fan of. We got a tear, a nice one. I just see that so commonly on the birth stool, and so does Beth. Yeah. But that's yeah. where she wanted to push. But what was really unique about this birth, and I'd never seen it before, and it's actually a bit sort of for listeners who are not medical, this may be a little trigger warning for grossness. But suddenly, while she's pushing and beginning to, her bottom is beginning to distend, her left labia swells up in a matter of about 10 minutes to, three to four times its normal size. And I'm, I'm not even paying attention at this point. I'm sort of like laying in the corner of the room. And, and I had looked before to see if anything was coming out when she's pushing and nothing is. And then I, about 20 minutes later, I just look at it again and I'm seeing this huge thing on the left side. And I sort of asked Beth, I said, Beth, that looks like a hematoma. And I'd never seen a hematoma in labor before. Mm -hmm. I'd seen it postpartum, but I'd never seen one develop that quickly in labor. And then sure enough, with one of her pushes, 
it it burst. Wow. And across the room, like six feet away, the stream of blood came out of it across the room. And then within a minute, the baby came out. So, um, and the baby was fine. The breech delivery was fine. But was, uh, was she still bleeding? Did it need oh, to be? Not that much. And so as soon mm-hmm. as the baby came out, we, um, Beth, well, she was, and Beth mm-hmm. put pressure on it. Mm-hmm. We got some ice and we put pressure on it while we're, you know, while she's holding the baby on the birth stool. And I, I said, let's get her into the bed. So we got her into the bed right away and um, we're holding pressure on it. We're putting ice on it and we're just waiting for the placenta. And then the placenta comes out and then you look at it and it's really not bleeding anymore. It's not swelling yeah, up it just, anymore. It just had to release the pressure. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that that she didn't really have varicosities anywhere on her legs or anything like that. But clearly her straining for hours on the toilet and other things like that and the way she was pushing and, and really being guttural with her diaphragm um, obviously caused some weak vein to pop inside mm-hmm. because it happened well before there was anything presenting or anything pushing against it. She hadn't had but one or two vaginal exams. So it really wasn't any of that was a spontaneous left labial hematoma. Yeah. At first, and we, by the way, we have it on film. So I'm not going to be posting that obviously, but I'm going to be using that for teaching purposes because I've never seen anything like it. And it's, and it's good to know. It's good to know that um, that can happen and it can still, you know, resolve itself on its own. Yeah. And, and yeah. essentially what, what you do when that happens is you just pull pressure on it mm-hmm. and finish the delivery or whatever. And then, and then you'll deal with it. And when I finally did the repair, there was a very deep space. I could stick my finger about an inch into it. It was like a, a like it had dissected between the tissue layers. So I put in a deep, figure of eight suture to close the space. Are you talking about um, behind the perineum or on no, the no, side where the, the hematoma? Left, this is on the left labia, which oh, it opened uh-huh. on the outside. It didn't open into the vagina. It opened like on the outside. So uh-huh. it was very easy to see the laceration. It was very easy. And, and she had a laceration, a typical, you know, one down below to essentially a third degree. But um, it was it was just a fascinating thing. and. And the strength of the parents and the and the support of nature and the uh, concern of the father were were so was so great, and he remained so calm. And it reminded me of something I wanted to mention last week that I didn't. But when I was looking at the, uh, I'm changing topic slightly, but I was looking at the prenatal record that we use in my office. It's ACOG's prenatal record sheet. Um, and I thought about it for a second, and, and then this confirmed it, that there's no place on that sheet that mentions um, a place for the father of the baby, uh, other than their name, about, about what they're thinking, about what their concerns are, or mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing. There's, no, there's nothing anywhere on there that says, discuss with father of baby this, or discuss with father. The, the father of the baby, or the partner, in, in case of a... a a gay couple, you know, is is um, really irrelevant. Again, reflecting the thought process, I think, of the American College of OBGYN and organized medicine in general. So, yeah, good point. I love that. Okay. I mean, I don't love that, but I love your point. <laughs> yeah, you so, um, you know, I've been adding things to my history taking, and I'm going to start to add 
that on some of the visits I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I know we always, we, we do talk to the father, but it's interesting that there's no place on there for father's concerns or, or uh, that sort of thing. Even father's yeah. history. Yeah. It reflects, it reflects the mindset. And by bringing the father into the, or again, I'm using father. I'm, I'm not trying to be incorrect here. I'm just saying because of partner, this, partner. this particular case mm-hmm. made me think of it was, um, yeah, by bringing the partner in more to the conversation and making them part of the discussion each time, it, it, I think it's got to do well for the whole process. I mean, even on my consent forms, where I'm consenting somebody to be in my practice, I have a place for the signature of the partner, mm-hmm. right? It's not required legally at all. Yeah. All right? But I put it on there because I want the partner to feel that, that this is their process as well. Right. Exactly. All right. So you wanted to read something. Well, I got, um, I got a message that I just, I was looking through. I wanted to keep up with some of the messages that I get from people. And this, um, her name is Kristen. Um, she direct messaged me on Instagram and she said, I've had eight births with midwives and I know it's state requirements and not their fault but it makes me so mad that I have to sign waivers for every single test I decline. As if it's the normal to have all tests and I'm taking huge risks by passing on some of them. If I follow the quote unquote guidelines, I I wouldn't have to sign. Something is wrong with that. I so appreciate your voice and the way you and Dr. Stu think about things. I have felt very alone, even in the natural birth world. And I'm not a birth worker, but I have a lot of babies. (laughs) As it feels like the midwives I'm around either have their hands tied or just go along with whatever the recommendations are. I know you understand. So I just thought that was interesting. Again, coming from the perspective of a, a woman who's desiring to have her babies as naturally as possible, um, that perspective of if you don't do the normal standards of care, then you're seen as the one who's doing something wrong rather than it just being a normal part of the process. And I think that's a great segue um, into GBS because, you know, we would be doing informed consent when it comes to GBS. It is a great segue, but I got a couple other things I want to talk about first. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah. But I like, but I, but I want to, I want to, I want to comment on that. Because I see that in, in even in my practice a little bit, like I have a declination of erythromycin consent form and I have a vitamin K yes or no form. And obviously I have a twin form and a breach form, which is sort of different than, but I don't have a refusal of a glucose testing form and I don't have a refusal of a GBS testing form. Um, But I know so many of my midwife colleagues do. They have a form for everything. And it is a sign of the times, mm-hmm. and the totalitarian nature of people running things in our profession, that if you don't do it their way, then you're the outsider, you're the interloper, you're the person that's the problem, not them. And um, it sort of ties in right now with the idea that, you know, if you don't want to take a vaccine, you need to sign a consent form saying you don't want to take it with lots of practices. And then in certain practices, and I know for a fact with Kaiser, if you decline the 
Tdap or the flu shot at the 28 mark or something like that, you can be labeled as a non-compliant patient. They put that sort of moniker on your chart. Yeah. And as if taking the flu shot and the uh, Tdap shot should be the norm. We've gone over this on the podcast before with the risk of diphtheria, of, of, of pertussis, is, of getting pertussis in, in the first year of life is so tiny remote that you're going to give, you know, essentially over three and a half million babies something that they don't need to prevent like, you know, 10 cases of, of pertussis in the first year or even the first three months or something like that. And again, this is a thing that's never been tested in pregnant women. And yet we're asking people to, to blindly take it. And, and um, this leads sort of into what I was going to go with because um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it sort of reversely, but there was, you know, the, 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 we talked last week a little bit about my friend who's having a wedding ceremony for his son. And they said that the only vaccinated people can go. I've got a little bit more information on that. And so I want to stand slightly corrected. Somebody in the family has a autoimmune, I mean, a, not an autoimmune, but has a, a immune um, problems. And so it's, there's more to it than that. I was probably a little bit less sensitive than I should have been because I still get so riled up because it's, mm. it, does enter, it does enter into pretty much everybody's aspect and people have no qualms about asking your, your opinion, or not your opinion, but your, your vaccination, status. which, is, which is, is a crazy thing that we've suddenly just felt like invasions of privacy are okay when it's for the common good. And since when, first of all, is it for the common good, which that's a whole can of worms because, but secondly, um, is, it, is it something that, when did it become so acceptable to do this? And I, the only reason that it, I, that it came to me was, I'm, a, I'm as I'm trying to buy a house, I'm, I'm cashing out a life insurance policy that I have and I'm taking the cash back. And in the process of doing it, it's rather tedious. I had to go through and speak to a, well, I think a policy specialist at the company. And they told me, they asked, you know, I said, I want to cash out my life insurance policy. And first question out of the woman's mouth was why? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I mean, I immediately, I blurted out that because I'm looking to buy a house, but my first, I should have said, what should I have said? It's because your, I want to. Yeah. It's none of your, <laughs> it's none of your business. Why? Mm -hmm. Okay. The second thing she questioned, she, then she questioned me and she said, have you spoken to your financial advisor about this? And it's like, okay, is she really concerned about me or is she just reading off the blocks to make, try to maybe talk me out of selling the insurance for, to, because the company says, because then she said, why don't you just sell off the, the part that's called the, um, it's Careful called- Careful with the shuffling on the-, on the yeah, It's called the, well, I'm shuffling on purpose. It's called the cost basis. <laughs> it's called the cost basis amount, which is the part that you can get, which is tax free, and then there's a taxable gain if surrendered. She said, "Well, why don't you just take out the the um, cost basis part and leave the taxable gain part?" And it's like, you know, I, I'm calling to cash out my account, right? Why are you asking me these questions? And what makes you think that it's okay to ask me these questions? I mean, are you, are you trying to say if I'm competent? You know, why don't yeah. you ask me, what would you do if you found a letter on the street with a stamp on it next to a mailbox? Okay. 
this is, this is, this is the kind of questions you ask to determine schizophrenia and that sort of thing. So I remember. Oh, oh, oh. I, I remember these questions from um, from when I was in uh, residency program. Schizophrenia. Um, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you determine someone's cognitive. I mean, they're they're whether they're all there or not. Yeah. Or, you know. Well, like, you did you did just get your uh, information from Medicaid too, so. Medicare, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, again, it's, it's, I want to cash this out. Why? Well, you know, again, maybe I'm oversensitive and I'm sure that I am, but I, I answered it in a nice way initially because I said I'm going to buy a house. But then her next question was about a financial advisor as if I can't make that decision for myself. Yeah. So, anyway, enough of that. And then uh, just in a brief dumb Dr. Dogma thing, I, um, Spoke to two twin moms yesterday, one from Portugal and one from Nigeria. So that was fun. On, on, mm-hmm. my, on my vacation, I'm Zooming people uh, yeah. from all over the world. <laughs> and again, both of them, especially the one in Portugal, has been getting nothing but basted in fear. Um, mm-hmm. Her cervix was slightly short at 20 weeks. And so for 25 weeks on, she's been at bed rest. She's now 31 weeks and her cervix is... 2.6 centimeters long, which is actually normal. And um, she's been told at risk about preterm labor. And then she's got, you know, that she's been told that she needs to have these babies because one of them is only in the fifth percentile and the other one's in like the 40th percentile, but they seem to be growing on their own growth curve. But because they're greater than 20% discordant, that's a real problem. And it's not a real problem. And, and, the, and the biophysical profiles were fine on both twins and they said to have then she should be tested again in a week so I, I i do the usual thing that i tell people well if they thought it was a real problem they wouldn't tell you to come back in a week right but, but yet the way it's presented to these mothers is that twins are inherently dangerous and you'll never make it and if one of the twins isn't head down you have to have a c-section and all the stuff that i'm just fighting against so that's that was it that was just it for that because it struck me yesterday and as i go along through the week i take i write these little things down that bother me i, I put them on little post-it notes and then I, <laughs> I summarize them so i can just bring them up because this is my this is my therapy talking to bliss for all of you listening is therapy for me and it's so nice because i can see her face so i can feel better about so many things Oh, I'm so glad. Okay, so you want to talk about GBS. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, it was one of the lists on our, uh, one of the questions on our list. And I don't think we've really covered it since we've restarted the podcast. So um, what the person specifically had asked was, um, is it really necessary to, um, to get prophylactic um antibiotics if you test positive GBS. So I, I thought that it would be good for people to hear um, how we counsel people um, in regards to GBS testing. Well, if you're a member of ACOG and you counsel people about GBS testing and they choose not to get antibiotics, then you're obviously counseling them wrong. Right, because you should be getting them to listen to your recommendation yes. or they're, non-co- they're non-compliant. Right? Yeah, this because is, ACOG, this is ACOG, ACOG recommends 
uh, performing universal GBS screening between 36 weeks and zero days and 37 weeks and six days. All women whose vaginal rectal cultures at that time of gestation who are positive for GBS should receive appropriate interpartum antibiotic prophylaxis unless a pre-labor cesarean birth with, with intact membranes is, is being performed. Say that last part one more time. All unless women should receive prophylactic antibiotics unless they're having a, a scheduled cesarean section prior to labor with intact membranes. Okay, then, then and they then, they would, then, they then, the, then they would be getting antibiotics anyways, right? When you do a C-section, women get antibiotics. But not till after the okay. baby's out. Okay, got that's, it. That's for wounded, that's for wound prophylaxis, that's different. Right, right, okay. So let's start, let's start with the problems with testing. Um, why this from a midwifery perspective, um, why would you, if, so GBS is a benign bacteria that lives in your colon. It's present in about a third of women who are tested. Um, but we've learned so much as sci scientific advances have come through about our biome. So we've got gut biome. So you guys hear a lot about like probiotics to help balance the good and bad bacteria in your gut because it's the foundation of your health. But as women, we also have vaginal flora biome. And when babies pass through this biome, we've learned their system is inoculated so that it strengthens their immune system ongoingly through their life, which is why when women are having C-sections, there's a movement to uh, what we call seed. So it, to take some of the vaginal flora and to expose the baby to it because it's not passing through the vagina. Why am I talking about that when it comes to GBS? So why, Stu, um, would we, when we do a, a vaginal swab, which we're trying to determine whether or not this benign bacteria has become over-colonized inside of the vagina and is present during the delivery, which is those babies are the ones who are most at risk, right? That the bacteria is actually present during the delivery. Why would we swab rectally? Can you help me understand? Um, because ACOG says so. <laughs> okay, but I want to know why my Stu thinks we should do that. Um, I don't. I have. I don't have a common sense answer for you. I can only be um, tell you that that researchers do things in researching sort of ways, mm -hmm. and if they're looking to find out whether you have beta strep, I don't. I've never seen a, a, a comparison study where they've cultured women just vaginally versus a, a cohort of women vaginally and rectally, mm -hmm. and then seeing the outcomes of those babies. So I can't mm -hmm. answer questions. I don't really know why, but ACOG does recommend that they do a vaginal uh, in the outer third of the vagina, and then uh, in the anus, beyond the anal sphincter, not just rubbing the uh, hemorrhoids, but, uh, <laughs> but actually going inside the anus. And they, they're assuming that they're, the, they don't do it like, in our model, we send the women to the bathroom to do it themselves. Um, and I think in most obstetrical offices, the doctor is still, or the nurse is still doing the, um, the swab themselves, putting the women up in stirrups and doing the swab themselves. And a lot of women who are getting this test don't even know what they're getting tested for. They don't know why. They don't know that they have a right to decline it. It's just, we're doing this test today. 
then your, your vagina and your anus is swabbed without you even having any information about it. So that's a whole other thing. But um, commonsensically, if you are wanting to test the vaginal flora to see if this overcolonization has happened and your baby is at higher risk, from a midwifery perspective, you would swab the vagina. Um, so right. it, it is that how you counsel your people when you give them the test to go into the bathroom or do you ask them to put it into the rectum? We just tell them to swab the vagina. Yeah. And, and the perineum, like that's what, that's the counsel. Yeah, and come, out, and come out and touch the perineum. Right. But, right. but we, we, we don't, I mean, I've changed because of you guys mm -hmm. because what you do makes much more sense to me than what I used to do. Right. It was vaginal then anal. And use this, you're supposed to use the same swab. So obviously you always do vaginal before anal, but, but um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't do that anymore. First of okay. all, I think, it, I think it's like uncomfortable and I'm not sure that it adds any better data. I don't know that it does or it doesn't. Um, I do know that, the, that women who have like a routine urine culture early in pregnancy as some practices will do, they'll do it as part of their prenatal uh, intake labs if they grow out GBS in their urine, that does put them at a higher risk because it does suggest that they have a higher colony counts of GBS in their genital urinary rectal area that it got into the urine itself. So um, that itself is a risk factor for, um, for GBS. So people who have a GBS culture that's positive in the urine, like at 10 weeks pregnancy, um, you know, you can reculture them and that's what we do. And if the culture is negative, we would not treat them. But there are plenty of people who would say that that disqualifies you from even being screened and you just will automatically be treated in labor. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think that if you're counseling someone that they should be informed that that is considered, you know, statistically and in studies, if you have ever shown it in your urine through your pregnancy, it's considered a risk factor. I think that that should be part of your counseling. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, if a woman wants to be retested, either their urine or if their vaginal swab comes back positive the first time and they'd like to try and work on it with natural remedies and be retested so that they can potentially feel more comfortable about declining the antibiotics, um, I'm as a provider, I, I feel totally comfortable supporting that decision. Yeah, let me, do, let me do a little bit of math because this will help people to sort of remember we always talk about actual risk as opposed to, you know, theoretical risk or relative risk. Mm -hmm. So um, from the ACOG committee opinion number 797, um, which was from June of 2019, they say that approximately 50% of women who are colonized with GBS will transmit the bacteria to their newborns. And in the absence of intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis, one to 2% of those newborns will develop GBS, early onset disease. Okay, so let's do the math. You said that one in three women are colonized with GBS. I thought it was 17%. So let's just say one in four, it's a nice average between the two of us. Yeah, that, the 17% feels more accurate for my actual practice, but yeah, um, yeah. so let's say 25%. Okay, so let's, that's one in four, all right? Now they're saying that, uh, um, and 50% of those people will, will uh, who are colonized will transmit the bacteria to their babies. So that's 
one in four times one in two or one in eight. Okay. Then it says that only 1%, one to 2% of those newborns will develop GBS. Okay. So let's say, let's say one, because that's easy. So one in a hundred. So it's one in eight times one in a hundred or one in 800. And if you take 2%, that's one in, that's one in 50. So it's one in eight times one in 50 to one in 400. So somewhere between one in 400 to one in 800 babies whose mothers aren't screened and aren't um, for, for GBS, who don't get antibiotics, their babies may develop early onset GBS disease. So when you counsel somebody and you tell them that the risk is high, that the baby, if they don't get antibiotics, you're actually being untruthful because what you're actually telling them is that one in 400 to one in 800 is high. Now, some people would say, again, this is for people that with, um, um, this is just the numbers with before we actually culture people. It's just the random, the one in four chance of having it. Mm -hmm. So if for people that don't want to be cultured, that don't want anything, they have somewhere between a one in 400 and one in 800 chance of their baby having this problem based on. Can I, yeah. Can we dial it down even a little bit more? Because it's my understanding that that's the statistic of babies that would get GBS disease. And then there's even another statistic of those babies that actually do have GBS disease that get very sick. Which is a small percentage as well. But any baby that gets GBS disease theoretically is going to end up with an intervention of some kind. Yeah. From their pediatrician or from the well, it could it could just be monitoring their breathing and stuff like that. Some babies can get very sick and will need to be in NICU, and it's very, very serious. We're not trying to diminish the severity of these babies who get who actually develop GBS disease and it's severe for them, but we're just trying to point out um, how common that actually would be without treatment, correct? Right, so you know, a, a one in 400 chance of getting GBS means, but I think if I do my math right, it's about a 99.8% right. chance of it not happening. Um, and that's getting not getting tested, not getting antibiotics. Okay. And again, so, this is this is similar to the thing with the with the Tdap shot, where ACOG says all women should get a Tdap shot to prevent a very small number of babies, unknown number really, of catching pertussis uh, within the first three months of life. And they always err on that side. It's the same thing with hepatitis B vaccine in a newborn and all these other things that they do. And the flu shots even were more ridiculous because we went through that in one of previous podcasts. They went through those numbers and it was astronomically small. You're taking okay. a, you're taking an astronomically small number and making it slightly smaller. Right. 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 So um, the standard of care here in the U.S., as you read from the ACOG guidelines, um, is that if a woman tests positive uh, prior to her due date. The testing is done somewhere between, you know, 36 to 38 weeks, um, that the recommendation is that she has antibiotics in labor. Um, every, it depends on the antibiotic that she would be using, but usually it's every four hours with at least one dose, uh, four hours prior to delivery. Correct. Right. And there is some evidence that if you can get at least two hours, you get some benefit from. Okay. So um, 
here's another problem with the testing is that this bacteria migrates. So it comes and it goes. So we're taking a snapshot from a particular time prior to delivery. So a woman could test positive and be negative with that colonization by the time she delivers, sometimes a month, six weeks later, or the reverse could happen. She could have a negative result. And by the time she delivers, she could be positive. So I always counsel my clients about what they do in Europe which is that they don't test women because we don't have a rapid test. We can't swab the vagina at the time of delivery to know whether or not this bacteria is present in the vagina. Um, and so then that's when the decision to give out antibiotics during labor is based on risk factors. Do you want to go through the risk factors? Yeah, I do. I do. And I want to make sure that we sometimes, before we, do, we don't forget to talk about one of the big things that's missing from the ACOG guidelines, and that's that the, what, what are the risks of giving antibiotics? Oh yeah, we'll get that. It's, it's not even listed in their, right. in their guidelines. So don't right. forget right. about that. Right. Well, I mean, the risk factors are pretty common there. I mean, well, I gotta get my glasses on, sorry about this. Okay. <laughs> um, risk factors are uh, preterm pre premature rupture of membranes uh, for premature babies. Rupture of membranes for 18 or hour, more hours at term, interpartum fever. Mm -hmm. And then they talk about, you know, previous history of a baby with GBS, uh, uh, early onset disease. Um, and I think that's it. I think those are the main risk factors. Those are the main risk factors. Yeah, I don't think I missed, I don't think I missed one, but. So for our clients, um, if someone developed a fever, during labor, we would probably be transporting anyways, because we would assume that there was something going on, either something having to do with COVID potentially, or that there was a fever, um, I mean, an infection. So, um, but in the hospital, some, sometimes women will get an epidural, which can increase her temperature. So it can be misconstrued as an infection. So it's just something for women to be aware of. It's not as easy to decline antibiotics in a hospital regardless, but it's just something to be aware of. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Bliss, I have to tell you that with, in my practice, um, in the 11 years I've been doing home birthing, I can't remember ever transferring anyone for fever. No, me neither. But that's, you know, we have protocols that we would probably, you know, consider. No, what I'm saying yeah. is, is that you're right. We don't use epidurals. Mm -hmm. Don't instrument their uh, vaginas a lot with intrauterine pressure catheters or a bunch of vaginal exams or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but and, and, you know, and I've in my practice have women who've been ruptured as long as as long as six days. Yeah, that developed fever, and again, that, I'm not real comfortable with that always because even that's outside my comfort zone. But nonetheless, um, she was a nurse and she knew what we talked about this before. She had twins and she was a nurse and she ended up having a nice water birth at home, but, but, um, yeah, so yeah, well, I won't, I won't belabor that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, and then obviously we wouldn't be caring for a preterm baby, um, or a baby that had any kind of health conditions that we believed it wouldn't be safe for them to be delivering out of the hospital. But in those situations, those moms might want to consider getting um, the antibiotics because those babies, if they did get exposed to the bacteria, um, 
you know, potentially because their um, immune system is not as strong, they could get very sick. So that's one of those times when it, when it may be prudent to consider it. Um, so the one that we usually in our practice are most commonly dealing with is a woman whose bag of waters is ruptured for over 18 hours. And so I think a lot of clients in my practice who don't feel comfortable with doing antibiotics, which we can talk about why that might be, um, end up uh, waiting to see how labor progresses. And then we would have a conversation again as we start to get to you know an extended period of time where the bag of waters is broken, whether they are testing positive for GBS or whether they've declined to test for GBS um, and don't know their status. Uh, and then have the conversation again. Here's a risk factor. How are you feeling? Would you like to accept antibiotics at this point or decline them? Yeah. A lot of things that go on in Europe are smarter than what we're doing here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I both, um, you know, have changed our tune a little bit about declining the uh, test altogether, not because necessarily we think it's the best test, but because we counsel our clients, if you did end up going to the hospital and you didn't have a result on file, you, you or your baby may be treated differently than if you had a test. And so just for ease, because it's just a swab, it may be better to just take the test. Absolutely. Because it's one of the first things that's ever asked whenever I'm transferring somebody to the hospital yeah. by the transferring physician. And even though my transferring physicians are usually my colleagues, um, they'll always know, you know, they'll ask, well, what's your GPS? Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's, so yes, we always try to talk people, but some people still won't do it and that's fine too. Uh, yeah. And again, because our multi-tip success rate at home is so high, the likelihood of transferring is so low that you can, you can easily see why they don't, they don't want to do it. And they, it's just another test that they don't want to do. Um, so we honor that because we do do the process of informed consent and shared decision-making and we let people make that decision. It isn't like you said earlier, where we just hand somebody uh, a bottle of, of, of sweet water and, and a piece of paper and say, when you come in next week, we're going to have you drink this and draw your blood and not tell them, explain why we're doing it. Or, or we, we say, we need to get undressed today because we're going to do a culture and, right. they don't, and they don't even know what it's about or anything about it, or that they have the right to say no, or, or they don't want antibiotic, which we could talk briefly about why a lot of people yeah, don't want please do. Well, first of all, um, antibiotics change your microbiome, all right? And they're, they're, they're used way too often. Um, just because of the numbers we just talked about, the risks are small, but the risk of antibiotics taking are also probably small. And you and I both feel that the risk of antibiotics at home are probably less than the risk of antibiotics in the hospital simply because the baby's gonna still be born into its home environment with its home bacteria, its dad's bacteria, its water burst bacteria, it's all that stuff, as opposed to in the hospital where the first bacteria that the baby will be exposed to, if the mother's been giving several doses of antibiotics and it's sort of knocked out her vaginal flora to some degree, is going to be hospital-based bacteria or you know, the nurse's bacteria or the, the warmer's bacteria or the nursery's bacteria. So. Um, a lot of people don't want antibiotics, plus other people get reactions to antibiotics. They may have had a bad reaction. They may have had hives. They may get yeast infections. It may affect something like that. They're maybe worried about thrush. Maybe they had antibiotics in a previous pregnancy and then they got thrush and they had problems with breastfeeding. There's all kinds of reasons why antibiotics do carry some risk. There is some resistance. Penicillin is the drug of choice. Um, if people are 
allergic to penicillin, but it's only a mild allergy, then acephalosporin is a reasonable choice. Um, otherwise, clindamycin, is a, and the, which is a more powerful drug, and it can affect your GI, your GI tract fairly well. There's something called Clostridium difficile, which comes from some people getting clindamycin. Sometimes, not, not that common either. Again, I don't want to lean too hard on the, on the opposite direction about hysteria, but it certainly is something that can happen. And then, of course, if you get sensitivities on your GBS culture and it says it's resistant to clindamycin and they're allergic to penicillin, then the only treatment, of course, is something called vancomycin. Vancomycin is a very potent drug and it has renal toxicity and among other things. And, and uh, so there are and the pros and cons of these antibiotics, in my experience and, and my own practice before, are never discussed. Never. Yeah. And, you know, just as someone who treats themselves and their family in the most natural way possible, um, you know, using antibiotics when you know that there's an infection, your body is unable to fight, and it, you could potentially get very sick, like I've shared before that I had a kidney infection a few years back, and I, I thought I had the flu. I was uh, after a, a long labor. Um, and I thought I had just like worn down my immune system. Turns out I had a kidney infection and I gladly took the antibiotics when I realized that my body was not able to fight this and I needed that help. But I can't tell you the last time I took antibiotics. And, you know, a lot of times what's happening is that antibiotics are thrown at things and then it's less effective over time if you, if your body actually needs it. Um, also what we were talking about the biome, if your baby is passing through your vaginal flora and all of the bacteria is wiped out. So now the good and the bad bacteria is wiped out. Then your baby is not getting the benefits of what we're finding out is so important for their immune system. Um, if you do end up feeling like antibiotics is a good choice for you, um, one of the things that you really should consider after taking antibiotics is doing a probiotic. Um, there are strains that are, as I was mentioning before, are, we have our gut biome and we have vaginal flora biome. So there are probiotics that are specifically for vaginal flora. Um, the one that I usually recommend for my clients is called Femdophilus. Um, and I recommend it for all of my clients starting at around 28 weeks. So somewhere, um, you know, going into the third trimester before you're about to take this test is really working on getting that biome, that vaginal flora biome nice and balanced so that the likelihood of you having GBS at the time of the test is a lot lower. Um, so I don't, I think you recommend that for your clients as well at this point. Yeah. Well, I, I defer to the, my midwife on the team because I'm not an expert in, in, um, in those sorts of things, but I absolutely, the probiotic thing is important. And when you deliver at a, at a hospital or even at home and you've had to have antibiotics because sometimes, and they're not the devil, they're sometimes they're actually, as you said, they're very necessary. Yeah. Um, then, then getting the baby immediately skin to skin um, with you, mm -hmm. all the other things you can do, kissing your baby, uh, nuzzling your baby, having your partner nuzzle the baby, having your partner get skin to skin with the baby, because um, your partner and you are colonized pretty much with the same bacteria. That's just the way it works. And uh, so that partner hasn't been taking antibiotics. So that partner can take their shirt off and whether they're male or female, doesn't really matter. Just get that baby to touch the skin and, um, you know, have that baby, you know, mouth and stuff get exposed to the bacteria that are on you that are, you know, they're not quite the same as vaginal bacteria, but um, they're better than the stuff that can be in the hospital. 
Yeah, yeah. As a very as, as a as an interesting uh, confirmation of the numbers that you and I went over earlier, Bliss. Um, mm -hmm. Farther down in the paper, they say implementation of national guidelines for interpartum antibiotic prophylaxis has resulted in a reduction of the incidence of GBS early onset disease of more than 80% from one, now that sounds huge, right? From 1.8 newborns per thousand in the 1990s to 0 0.23 newborns per thousand in 2015. So interestingly enough, 1.8 newborns per thousand is about one in 450, which is exactly what you and I said was the risk, all right? Mm -hmm. And again, that's small, but now, and, and then it's been, you're taking one in 450 and reducing it to um, 0.23, which is newborns per thousand. So that's two, two per 10,000, one in 5,000. So it's about a tenfold, I guess you're, it's almost a, maybe an eightfold decrease in risk by giving antibiotics. But you're, again, you're taking a small number into a very small number. For some people, that's actually very valid and they wanna do it. Other people could look at it the other way. And again, when we give informed consent, we, we try to avoid the totalitarian, authoritarian nature of organized medicine. Organized medicine has its idea and that's what you should do. And if you don't do it, then there's something wrong with you. You're a fool, you're an idiot. Um, this, is, this is, and our job is to convince you through a process of shared decision-making, ironically, that you should do what we tell you to do. Yes, and that Western medicine is the only way to care for your body. And there are no other smart decisions that you could be making um, besides through the lens of Western medicine. Yeah, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has uh, published its recommendations which support the use of antibiotics for all the things we've talked about before. And it's interesting that when I read that, I, it just clicked in my head that the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out this past week saying that, that all kids in school should be wearing masks. So that's what I think of the American Academy of Pediatrics. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so I'm not going to get into the specifics of uh, you know what recommendations, natural remedies that you could use if you wanted to turn around uh, a um, test result that came back positive, but you can search online. There are lots of um, recommendations that, you know, using things like apple cider vinegar and um, garlic and uh, probiotics, high fermented foods, there's lots and lots of recommendations. So you kind of just go on and do what feels right for you and hopefully work with your provider to be able to be retested. Yeah, um, there are some protocols that say if you use like HibaCleanse or something, prior to uh, labor, that that helps too. But it seems to me that defeats the purpose because I think that would probably kill everything in your vagina. So the benefit of using HibaCleanse, it was used a lot by midwives, like back when I was having babies, that was, you know, if someone wanted to kind of prevent GBS and didn't want to do antibiotics or didn't want to do an IV, um, you're right, it would wipe out everything. Um, but then you wouldn't have to have um, there's no studies, so you can't, we don't have any like statistics to be able to tell you the efficacy, um, only that it was traditionally used by midwives for a very long, you know, for, a, I mean, not traditional midwives from way back when, but you know, in the nineties, that was definitely something that was common, but you wouldn't have to have an ID. And I think that's the other problem is that women in labor don't want to have to have a, have a IV put in. They don't, they feel like they might, 
um, be restricted in their movements and stuff like that. So that's a consideration for some women of why they might want to choose something like HibiCleanse. Yeah, but also HibiCleanse isn't systemic either. So it's not going to affect the, right. the rest of your body, just locally. Right, right. Um, okay. Uh, a definition, just so we're, we're clear, that GBS early onset disease presents within seven days after birth and occurs secondary to vertical transmission from the mother, all right? It's most mm -hmm. likely to manifest within the first 12 to 48 hours after birth, all right? So, you know, within if, if the baby's not showing lethargy or fever or poor sucking or anything within the first two, three days, it's unlikely that the baby's gonna get this early onset disease, even though technically it's listed up to seven days. In contrast, however, GBS late onset disease presents between seven days after birth and two to three months of age, and is characterized by, by bacteremia, meningitis, less commonly organ or soft tissue infection, and late onset disease is primarily acquired by horizontal transmission from the mother or other caregiver or other individuals in the community. So that's an acquired infection as opposed to something after that's born. vertically transmitted from during the birth process. And, right. Um, in my career, I have seen some babies with the, I've not seen my own babies, but I've been, when I was a resident, there were babies in the NICU with, with GBS disease. And it, as you said earlier, Bliss can be very troubling, very severe. Yeah. Right. And just for my clarification, the statistics that we gave earlier for antibiotics would be um, helping to prevent early onset, but would not necessarily help with late onset, correct? Yes, it doesn't help with late onset. Yeah, because right. it's, it's okay. transmitted in a in a horizontal fashion later on. Right. Um, so here's some here's some um, risk factors that are associated with babies who who if your if your baby's going to catch early onset disease, it's more likely when women have these following risk factors. Okay, the primary risk factor for that is uh, maternal vaginal rectal colonization with GBS, but other risk factors including gestational age less than thirty seven weeks very low birth weight, mm -hmm. long rupture of membranes, intraamniotic infection, young maternal age, maternal black race, um, GBS bacteria, and a previous newborn with history of uh, new, uh, early onset disease. Okay. Oh, so you added a couple more to that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are the risk factors of babies who, 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 who get it. Um, you're more likely, again, yeah, those are, you're more likely to get it. Some of those things you obviously don't necessarily know, you know, very low birth weight. I mean, you could estimate, I guess you could estimate low birth weight and stuff like that. But I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to treat you because you're tw you're 18 years old and I'm not going to treat you because you're 30. And I'm going to treat you because you're black and I'm not going to treat you because you're white. You wouldn't re really do that. You just have to be aware of these sorts of things, right? Yeah, and give, and give true informed consent. And then it's and then the, some people say I've been asked this question many times before. Like, well, if you get a GBS culture back at thirty-seven weeks and it's positive, why don't you just treat with treat me then? Why don't you just give me some oral antibiotics? You've heard mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the data doesn't support that that actually does anything and it doesn't work. And neither interpartum nor, uh, nor excuse me, antepartum or interpartum oral or intramuscular regimens have been shown to be comparably effective in reducing early onset disease. So that's why. Okay. okay. As my cousin would say, good talk. Yeah, let's see if I have anything else on here. Um, <clears throat> they talk about uh, the rapid uh, uh, rapid testing. Mm -hmm. Rapid testing list, because I don't know too much about it. I don't know that it's really available. 
I haven't seen it be available. It has it has a, an acronym called NAAT, stands for Nucleic Acid Amplification Testing. Mm -hmm. And you can usually get the results back if you have a 24-hour lab, which you and I don't. <laughs> but mm -hmm. you can usually get it back within two hours. So mm -hmm. for people that come in who aren't who don't have who have unknown status, in theory, before giving them antibiotics, if you think you can buy time, you can generally send off a rapid GBS test if you have access to it to help determine uh, if your baby's, you know, if you, if you carry it. And then if you don't carry it, then you don't need antibiotics. And if you do carry it, then you can have that discussion, hopefully a uh, open, honest discussion with your practitioner about whether or not you want antibiotics or not. Um, but again, I think your recommendation and that one that we all follow of getting the screening done, even if you really don't want it, is probably a good idea because of the panic that will ensue at the hospital if you don't have it done. Um, okay. I think that's pretty much it on that. I think I yeah. added one more thing. See, when a woman is in labor and her GBS colonization status is unknown, a temperature of 100.4 or higher, a rupture of membranes for 18 hours or more is independently associated with increased risk. Yeah, I guess we did, we did mention that. Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, I got a couple more things here. Um, yeah, we're going long today. Well, we, we should have seen last week. <laughs> um, that, that was the two to four hour thing. I got that. So, oh, membrane sweeping. Okay. Is it a contraindication when you have GBS? And the answer, according to ACOG, is one, one prospective cohort study evaluated the effect of membrane sweeping in 135 women, not a very large study. Although the sample size was not powered to evaluate the outcome of neonatal sepsis, there were no differences between the two cohorts with regard to clinical indications of neonatal sepsis. So the, the evidence is limited, but they think membrane sweeping does not appear to be associated with adverse outcomes in patients with GBS. How about balloon catheter? All right, they didn't find any increased risk with balloon catheter, even that, though that's going up inside. But again, there's, there's very little data on that. How about uh, water immersion in water? Yeah. International guidelines suggest that immersion in water during labor or birth is not contraindicated for women with colonized with GBS. The ACOG uh, recommends that immersion in water during the first stage of labor may be offered to healthy women at term who have uncomplicated pregnancies. By the way, I did underline the term the first stage of labor. Yeah. Because not for ACOG does not support water birth. Um, yeah. And, and Water Birth International has done a lot of research having to do with bacteria, not just GBS, but, but other things. And um, the, the studies that they have done have shown that it actually can lower the incidence of um, the baby getting GBS when yeah. during a, a water birth. So. Yeah, I've, read, I've read that also. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that kind of data is, is ignored by the medical community. So, what about ARAM? What about ARAM? I uh, would say, just are, say there, no. <laughs> yeah, there are no there are no data to suggest that artificial. Funny you should ask. There are no data to suggest that artificial rupture of membranes increases the risk of neonatal disease when appropriate interpartum antibiotic prophylaxis is is given, and therefore amniotomy is reasonable performed if clinically indicated. So. If you have unknown status and they're not on antibiotics, it's a crapshoot probably. Well, since it's a risk factor 
and you don't know, you know, how long you could be in labor, it's probably better to keep the bag intact unless right. it breaks unless, on its own. Unless someone's like eight centimeters and it's stalled out a little bit and you know they're not going to be 18 more hours of ruptured membranes, it's unlikely. Uh, also, what about vaginal examinations? And studies have identified an enhanced risk of the development of GBS early onset disease associated with increasing number of vaginal examinations. In women receiving interpartum antibiotic prophylaxis, vaginal examination should be performed when clinically indicated. So they're saying if you're getting antibiotics, vaginal exams are okay. If you're not, you shouldn't. And I would say that you don't need to do them even if you're getting antibiotics, but yeah. And what they, what they term clinically indicated wouldn't be probably the same in the middle as what we term clinically indicated in the midwifery model. Mm-hmm. Because in the, in the medical model, they need to chart progress because that's how they, they manage labors is by charting progress. And that's how they sign out to the next team coming on. And that's how the nurses can give report. If they can't give report, if they don't know what the vaginal exam is. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's changing in medical residency programs, but I'm afraid that many of them it's not. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to get off on a tangent. I think we could have this be another, another uh, podcast, but do you know how many times I've done AROM since I've become licensed after, after my clinical student time? And guess. Yeah. How many? Zero. A big fat zero. I am not a fan. Uh, so just, the just only, wanted to say the that. The only AROMs I've done since I've joined your ranks are on second twins sometimes. Right. Yeah. Especially when uh, uh, you, you have a reason to believe that baby B is not doing well. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Well, anyway, once again, we did we did a good job. Get, once again, we did not get to listener questions. <laughs> it's okay. This was a listener question. It just took up a whole podcast. Yeah, it took up a whole podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's on your agenda for the coming week? Um, to support my boys in finding an apartment and oh, then yeah. okay. and then getting the podcast the uh, podcast and then getting the pod moved up here um, with all of our belongings and getting them unpacked and then being on my merry way. I'm hoping to be. I made a reservation for um, Yosemite for the 17th. So I'm hoping that I will be able to be in Yosemite at that time. Well, and and then I want you to start thinking about where you want me to meet you. I'm thinking Klamath River. I'll talk to you more about it. I like that idea. Yeah, I thought you might. I I like that idea because we said coastal. Yeah. And um, yeah, the question is, will I fly up there? with our stuff and then you'll pick me up at the airport or will I have to drive all the way up to Klamath River? It might be a nice drive since you oh, have time. Yeah, actually I do. And it is a nice drive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very nice. Well, especially once you get north of San Francisco, it's really nice. Yeah. So I love you. I got to run because we've got to go see a place. Hopefully wish us luck. I love you too. And I love our listeners. And I'm really happy that um, I get to see you once a week and they get to hear you once a week. And so yeah. Until next week, uh, once again, I'm really appreciative that everybody listens to us and and send your comments and send your love because we need more of that in the world. Yes, we do. And and until next time. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 